Welcome back to another episode of the Rescue Revolution. I'm Iman Gueli, and today I will be interviewing Mark Myers from Peaceful Valley Donkey Rescue, the largest donkey rescue in the world. Based in San Angelo, Texas, this rescue works throughout the lower 48 states in America, as well as Hawaii and the Caribbean. It has been operating for the past 21 years and currently has over 3,000 donkeys distributed throughout 75 facilities under its direct care. Today, you'll learn about the donkey massacre going on in the Kimberley region of Australia, highlighted in Mark's documentary called Without a Voice. We'll talk about the domestic and international wild burrow problem, the wild burrow project, project sanctuary, the Alantia hoarding case in California, and much more. Mark Myers was selected as a 2019 Top 10 CNN Hero for his selfless acts of donkey conservation and preservation. In addition, USA Today Travel listed Peaceful Valley Donkey Rescue among the 10 amazing animal sanctuaries in the United States in 2019. As a 501c3 nonprofit organization, Peaceful Valley Donkey Rescue is accredited by the Global Federation of Animal Sanctuaries. Please join me in welcoming Mark to discuss his phenomenal work at the rescue. Hi, I'd like to welcome Mark Myers from Peaceful Valley Donkey Rescue. Hello, Mark. Hello. Hi, uh, thanks for taking the time to join me today. Uh, Mark, I know that you have the largest donkey sanctuary in the United States, if not the world at this time. That's correct. That is impressive. I, I myself volunteer for a donkey rescue called Whispering River Rescue up here in Gasport, New York. It's the Buffalo area. So your mission is definitely near and dear to my heart. Um, and I'm sure you get asked this question all the time. You could have chosen any animal to save. Why donkeys? What's so special about them? Uh, they're very misunderstood. Uh, we got our very first donkey, well, over two decades decades ago, and we knew nothing about him. Uh, my wife bought a donkey over the internet to be a companion to a horse that she had. And this young donkey jumped off the trailer and right into our heart. We knew nothing about him, but here was this, this big bundle of hair that was like a big puppy dog. And we just loved her to death. And so we were asking everybody we could find what what do you know about donkeys and every bit of information we got was different nobody knew anything about donkeys and so we learned and we kind of had to teach ourselves about donkeys and now that we had a donkey we started noticing donkeys and what we noticed is the donkeys in our community were nothing like the one we had uh the first one my wife found um ended up being we named him banjo eventually but his chest was rubbed raw from lunging through the bars of the pen he was kept in in this feed store. And he had this green snot hanging out of his nose. Oh my God. Bought him, paid good money for him and paid somebody to bring him to our house and $1,500 in vet bills later and me sitting out there talking with him every night. He was just as friendly as Izzy, our first donkey. And -hmm. then by that time, my wife had found two more. And these poor guys were starved thin. And if you approach them, they would shake so bad they would fall down. That's how mistreated they were. So she bought them, brought them to the house. And a few months later, they were just as friendly as Zizzy and Banjo. 
And this just kept going. And what I realized is nobody understood them. Mm -hmm. But inside of every one of them was this loving, caring, emotional creature that could love you back if you just gave them the time and what, you know, the compassion that they needed to find themselves. And most people just don't take the time to do that, to give that to them. And I just have so much respect for their intelligence, um, for their courage, for their compassion. And I don't know, I've been doing this over 20 years and every day they still amaze me. Yeah, that is true. And they all each have a different personality, you know, just kind of like a dog. Uh, very much so. Very funny, very friendly. Some kind of want their own space. You know, they all have their own different um, personalities. And, you know, throughout history, donkeys are always the, you know, the butt of every joke. Um, they're, you know, there's so many misconceptions about them out there. Um, what are some of the ones that you've come across a lot? Uh, well, you know, in the United States, it's always the sidekick that rode the donkey. Uh, Bugs Bunny turns into a donkey if he does something stupid. Pinocchio turns into the donkey when he was overindulgent. Um, you know, uh, if you're driving on the freeway and somebody cuts you off, you call him a jackass. Um, I've never known a donkey to drive a car, so I don't know where that particular phrase came from. Uh, but I was, I, I was hauling a load of donkeys across country one time. And I pulled over in a, a truck stop parking lot to let my dogs out. And a truck driver walked all the way across the parking lot to make a stupid donkey joke. And it's like, wow. Yeah, I, I guess you had a lot of time on your hands. So thanks for that. You know, not, not like I haven't heard every stupid donkey joke in the world. <laughs> but yeah, you know, I just don't, I don't get that because you know, part of what we do is we manage five and a half million acres of wild donkey habitat. Try catching these things. You think yeah. they're stubborn and stupid? You try catching these things. They'll outsmart you at every turn. They are really highly intelligent animals and they're not afraid of you. So they will stand there and watch you put those traps together and try to figure out how to defeat you while you're doing it. They're that intelligent. Yes, I I believe you. I know I work with them sometimes. And, you know, one misconception that I get a lot is, oh, donkeys are so stubborn. You know, um, why is that? Why do people say that all the time? It's because they're always pulling on a donkey and he refuses to, to go. I, horses react to pain. You can make a horse kill itself through pain. You can make a horse kill itself through fear. Horses have a flight mentality. Mm -hmm. If they see something that scares them, they run away from it, okay? You put a bit in a horse's mouth and you pull back, what does the horse do? It stops. Correct. If you put spurs that are sharp into a horse's flank, what does it do? It goes forward. A donkey is the exact opposite. If you challenge a donkey, he will come at you. Mm -hmm. um, I've seen donkeys bite the, the tips off of cattle prods because it was hurting them. Wow. They react differently to pain. I had a donkey that took um, Mary to Bethlehem every Christmas and Jesus to Jerusalem every Palm Sunday. He was that well-trained. He could go in upstairs. He could go into churches with people waving palm fronds. He was that well-trained. He hated to get in trailers. Mm. Why? Because trailers are noisy. He has no control over where he's going. 
So he would always balk at getting in the trailer. Churches were fine. Not that. This old cowboy pulls up, says, oh, that, you know, he's being stubborn. No, he's being intelligent. You know, if I grabbed that cowboy out of that pickup truck and tried to jerk him into that trailer, what would he do? He would balk at the same thing, right? Is that cowboy being stubborn? No, he's trying to self-preservere. But you put that on a donkey and, oh, he's being stubborn. Exactly. And, you so, know, it's, it's funny because uh, they actually, the reason why they stop is because they're literally taking in their surroundings and thinking about what's going to happen or what they want to do before they take a step forward. Or like you said, a horse will just go right with you. Um, a donkey, you know, and that's why I guess they got named that, you know, that they're so stubborn because they literally pull back and just take in everything and think they, about they it. Want it. They want to know that it's safe. Correct. Uh, they took one of my personal donkeys up to the vet and I didn't know this. Um, and they had a heck of a time loading it. He's an old, he's, oh, 20 plus years old. And I didn't know they took him. And so the next day they were going to pick him up. And I said, well, I'm going to go with you. And they said, good, because we barely got him in the trailer. My donkey. I walked up to him. I had a talk with him. We walked, got up to the trailer. I, and of course, they were going to try to, we're going to get him in there, Mark. No, you're not. Step back. I walked <laughs> him up, let him look around. I walked in the trailer. He looked around. Then he got in the trailer. It was just that simple. He just needed the time and the trust to adjust to his surroundings. That's all they are. They're not stubborn. They're just that smart. They're as every bit as smart as we are. So how old can they get to be? The oldest one that I personally knew was 53 years old when we put him down. And the lady had him all 53 years. Wow. The <laughs> oldest one that I have right now is 42 that's here on my yard. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, they live a very long time. So if they're in the wrong hands with the wrong owner or being abused, that's a really long time. Yes. Yes, it yeah. is. A lot of people leave their donkeys to us in their estates mm -hmm. because they know the donkeys will outlive them. So they'll, and so we go and pick them up. The executors will call us and we just go and pick them up. Okay. Um, so I know that uh, you also, um, you've rescued internationally as well. Um, and I kind of want to touch base on that because I was looking at your website and I was doing some research and I thought, this is amazing. Um, so not only do you do this domestically, but you're also doing this internationally and you also have a branch of the Donkey Rescue called the Donkey Rescue International, correct? Where you yes. have, um, you go to the Caribbean as well? Yes. Yeah. And, um, and you also have your own Peaceful Valley Productions where you produce documentaries and educational videos. Um, and other media activities. So I'd like to touch on two significant stories that you shared on your website. Uh, one was about Hawaii and the other one was about Australia. And so first I'm gonna go abroad and then I'm gonna circle back into the US and discuss the work that you do here. So on your website, you shared a documentary called Without a Voice, The Eradication of Wild Donkeys. And I watched the entire documentary and I was absolutely astounded by what's going on there. Um, with their wild donkey population. So if you could please share with us, uh, you know, why you did this documentary and how important it is to get the word out to help save these animals. Because at one point, the continent was home to over 5 million donkeys. And as of 2019, it's less than a million. So what happened there? Well, uh, if everybody would think back before the pandemic, the big news of the world was Australia was on fire. Uh, the fires actually 
put the koala bears on the endangered list. That's how bad the fire were all across the continent. And what nobody realized is that Australia was just killing all their herbivores, all their large imported herbivores. And that's not just the donkeys, but the horses, the water buffalo, camels, all these big herbivores that were keeping the tall grass in check. And they did it because those herbivores were competing with the cattle and the cattle were the big industries. So the cattlemen are a huge lobby over there, the cattlemen and the sheep. And so they just went around in, in helicopters and literally shot everything they saw. Now I've got a heart for all animals, but of course, when I heard 4 million donkeys just in the Western territories alone. Oh my gosh. Story, you know, of course that piqued my interest, but when I found out that there was one family on this one cattle station that was trying to save 150 of them. And a friend of mine who uh, at the time was working on his PhD in Australia, and he, he knew this family. And so he called me and said, maybe you could do something. He knew I was a filmmaker and he knew my partner and I were in the middle of a film project here in the States. And he's like, dude, I'm gonna be out on this cattle station. Come and let's see if you can make a film. So we, we flew down there and we're able to, we actually interviewed a helicopter pilot that was one of the pilots that went out on the shoot. And you can just, you can see the emotion in this guy's face that he just, he wasn't happy about being a part of it. Yeah. And it, it, I mean, it's very emotional, but nobody knew, nobody, none of the Australians that we interviewed knew anything about the coal and that it was taking, even that it was taking place. And so with all these animals that were killed, the grass kept growing and then it caught fire and the fires were out of control all across the continent and it, it, it's devastating. It is devastating and I, I was just surprised to hear that this was actually the Australian government that did this it was. and it was mostly done in the area called the Kimberley it's the northwestern area or yeah, was northwestern, it all over part of it, yes okay and so I guess the biggest situation, the biggest problem was like, as you said, is, oh, donkeys are not really indigenous to that area. So they were brought over and now they're multiplying um, and they're taking over everything and the cattle isn't getting what they need, correct? Yes. Um, but I was surprised when you, you know, when I was looking at the, and I, I hope, you know, you guys, the people that are listening to this, go onto the website and see this documentary because it's unbelievable. Um, I know that you show pictures of, of the donkeys, you know, that had been shot. They are literally just left there um, to rot because people do not see any value in them, correct? Yes. Yeah. And while they're up there shooting, they, I guess at some point they decided that they were going to use the Judas method. Yes. And can you explain to me how that Judas method works? Yeah, they would put a radio tracking collar on a female and they would, they would let her live and she would attract other females and males to her and they would let that go for about a year until she had a herd of donkeys around her and then they would go and track her down and shoot all the donkeys around her and let her go again. Oh my gosh. Later, she would attract another herd of donkeys and they would kill all the donkeys around her. And so she became the Judas that would betray, unbeknownst to herself, all the donkeys around her. And, and, and if, you know, 
It's very cruel, actually, because um, I know one of the people that you had interviewed said it's like using love to gain death, you know? Yeah. And what's baffling to me is I kept doing this to the same Jenny. So if you know about herds and donkeys and how they relate to family, like, can you explain how they're very close-knit and oh. how they interact with each other? Yes, donkeys, donkeys are very tight-knit. Um, wild herds are matriarchal. And so one Jenny will have a foal, that foal will have a foal, and all the females will stay together in that herd basically for life. They bond for life. And so to do this is just unspeakable. It's devastating. It's so and they did it over and over and over again. I mean, it's yes. just like one of us, you know, you know, you're you're in your immediate home, you know, you get your mom, dad, sister, brother shot. Then you go over to your cousin's house because those are the next of kin and then they get shot. And then, you know, it's, it's like on and on and on again. It's yes, terrible. It Very inhumane. Very inhumane. Um, and, and what was shocking is that the Australian people did not even know about this, you said? Yes. Anybody that we met on the streets, they did not know about it. Mm -hmm. And some were indifferent. Some were like, oh, well, it's, it's for the best. When... It's not for the best because this, the scientific data points to the fact that it's not for the best because it created the fires. And the fires were more devastating than what the animals were doing. Now, was the coal necessary? Yes. They, if they were overpopulated, then the coal might have been necessary. Mm -hmm. But a complete eradication, that's what caused the fires. Right. So it wasn't done scientifically. So it was basically donkey control versus donkey eradication, and they chose right. the latter. Yes. Right. Um, and what's interesting is also that Australia seems to hold, uh, is it, is, and you can correct me, is it about 70% of the world's donkey population? Wild donkey population, yes, because they're pretty much gone uh, in the wild in Africa. Mm -hmm. And now with the Chinese hide trade, um, a lot of donkeys are going into about 4 million a year being killed for their hides to go to China, which is unsustainable. No. They've, uh, they've had to uh, ban donkey hide export in a lot of African nations. And so that doesn't really stop it, though, because they'll just steal the donkeys from one nation, smuggle them across to another and export from there. A lot of uh, South American countries are exporting their donkeys. And so the, the donkey population overall is dwindling. Yes, and I know we have the same situation here for the exporting also of equine, which we'll get into more of the yeah. domestics in a minute. Um, so just to kind of reiterate, the animals, the, the, uh, what they call the, um, the megafauna, right? The donkeys, the water buffalo, camels, those are so important. And I know you have a video um, that explains why they're so important using you know, the carbon uh, cartoon that you had. <laughs> uh, that was really, really a good idea to explain um, you know, what's going on. So. When you look at the cycle, obviously, when an animal like a donkey will eat all these dry grasses that nobody wants to eat, right? And he, they digest them. Eventually, they you know, go ahead and release them back uh, when they use the bathroom, quote unquote. And so it's, it's, a, it's a recycling thing. And then the grass uses those nutrients to grow again. So when you get rid of that animal, now you have dry grass that's everywhere. It's uncontrollable and then fires happen, right? Which is like you said, it goes right back to that huge fire that killed so many plants and animals. Um, and it could have been prevented. 
Yes. And then the carbon has nowhere to go. So it stays in the atmosphere. You know, uh, it doesn't matter where you fall on climate change because climate change is such a political thing now instead of being a scientific thing, which it should be. But no matter where you fall, fire releases carbon, carbon goes into the atmosphere. That's just common sense. Correct. So if you can prevent fire, then you have all this natural resource. And Australia is a big continent. It's a big place. I mean, it's huge. Mm -hmm. And so if you had all that greenery right there that can draw all that carbon out of the air in a natural way, that's a good thing. And those animals were part of that system to keep that natural carbon processing in place. And without it, it's, it just all went awry. Yeah. And I mean, when you burn everything, all these plants that are responsible for, you know, pulling the carbon out of the atmosphere are now gone. So it's just literally hanging around and it's, it's not a good thing. Um, so I, I'm so glad that you brought attention to that. That that's a very important thing. And I um, thought putting it in a cartoon. Yes. And making it very simplistic. I actually wrote the script for that cartoon as we were taxiing in on in LAX uh, before we got to immigration. I wrote, wrote the script for that. So wow. <laughs> I thought it would be just make it simple for people to understand. <laughs> Excuse me to understand the process you know as a whole it's it really is that simple yeah it is process. <laughs> so thank you thank you for that um and it's it's just amazing to me too that you know people were complaining that the megafauna such as the horses camels and and the uh, donkeys are you know taking over but you said something in the documentary which i loved and, and it was you quote unquote, you know, quote saying that, uh, but Australia is the home of introduced animals, yep. horses, camels, water buffalo, and most recently the cane toad, which they were brought over to eat cane beetles, you said, but nobody told them to stay put, which I thought was funny. Um, so they're decimating birds, certain reptiles, and even mammals here in Australia. So really, these are all man-made problems, right? We're bringing oh. animals here and then they're multiplying and then we're getting rid of them on our terms without really learning how they've adapted into the system. The donkeys have been there for a long time. Yes. So even here in this country, they've been here. They, they you know, donkeys here in the United States, they predate the signing of the uh, Declaration of Independence by 178 years. Yeah. So they were here long before. They were here nine years before Jamestown, but they're considered a non-native species. It's the same in Australia. So. Here, we consider anything before Columbus is native. There, it was everything before Cook. Mm -hmm. So if you happen to be there before the first white guy showed up, you're native. Anything mm -hmm. after that is non-native. Wow. And that's just not very scientific to me. Because these have become part of the ecosystem. And that's just, that's just reality. Yeah. You remove so a, a, right. an important part, then other parts are going to collapse because they've learned to coexist over all these hundreds of years. Exactly. And um, so is this still going on today? Yes. Okay. Yes, they're still trying to cull that 150 donkeys on uh, Kachana cattle station. And it's a constant battle. So how can we, the people, help with that? 
Well, that, uh, that's the, the good question. Um, being in the United States, we don't have a lot of power in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, through the website, they can reach out to uh, Chris and Jackie who run the Kachana station. Uh, they have a newsletter and you can show your support to them and they can help guide the uh, people here in the United States on who to contact through uh, the Department of Agriculture in okay. Australia. Okay. So that's the best way. It, uh, there's a website, uh, withoutavoice.movie, that mm-hmm. has all the resources and all the videos and everything that they can look at right there. Okay. Thank you. That's, that's so important to know. I, I for sure did not know about it. And I'm working in the donkey world. So when I watched that, I, I was very flabbergasted that this is actually happening and it's still happening today. You know, Um, you've also rescued donkeys out in Hawaii. And can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, This was back, I want to say in 2011. I'm terrible with dates. Um, And there was a drought in the whole Hawaiian island system. And on on the, the big island, all the donkeys lived up on top of the mountain and didn't bother anybody. But then when the drought came, all their springs dried up. And so they came out of the mountains and started eating on the golf courses at the resorts. Mm. That didn't go well. Then they started hanging out along the roads and they got hit by cars. And so the government said, okay, they got to go. And so a team of people headed up by a veterinarian named uh, Brady Bergen uh, started catching them. And they didn't know what to do with them. They placed as many locally as they could, but they still had 120 of them. And so Peaceful Valley Donkey Rescue, along with the Humane Society of the United States, we formed a partnership and we flew 120 donkeys in a modified 747 from Kona into Los Angeles International. Wow. And myself and Dr. Bergen flew with them to make sure they were okay. I personally loaded 120, six at a time, into these aluminum containers. Mm-hmm. They're like giant dog kennels, uh, but six at a time. And then we would put them on basically what you see at the airport, uh, the little trolleys pulled by an engine. Mm-hmm. We would take them and scissor them up and put them in and lock them in place in the 747. And then we rode upstairs in the 747 and about, you know, every 30 minutes we'd go down and look, make sure everybody's okay. Mm-hmm. And then when we got to LAX, I would unload them six at a time into various trailers. We had a whole long line of trailers waiting to pick, pick them up. And then at the time, we still had a facility in Tehachapi, California, which is uh, above Los Angeles County. And we unloaded all of them and let them chill for a while. And that was a pretty big project. Yeah, I can only imagine. I'm Wow, the fact that you got all of them on a plane and back down safely and then after that you had to put them all in a trailer to yes. take them where they needed to go so i can't even imagine the amount of work that you had to do and people don't realize you know you're also giving them food and water and making sure you know everything is okay um so it's not just the flight there's so much that goes into it and there's a lot of stress that they were under you know that, that's a lot of stress we had to give them a lot of time just and, and then we have to make sure that they are drinking they are eating because a lot you know that kind of stress that a lot of their systems can shut down. So we, we really had to monitor each one to make sure that they were okay after that trip. And speaking of shutting down, um, you know, from 
what I've read and, and kind of understood with donkeys, once they go down, they seem to quickly decline. Is that correct? It's because they're so stoic. They don't show pain easily. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, if you, here at this Texas facility, we have about a thousand donkeys. And so we have people that manage the herds, the big numbers, you know, the 100, 120 herds. Mm -hmm. But we have individual vet techs who each morning walk those herds to look at each individual donkey. Wow. Because if their ears are down, they're, they're, they're shying away from the feed, they get pulled immediately for evaluation. Mm -hmm. Because, yeah, you don't have a lot of time. If the donkey is declining, you're, a lot of times it might be too late. So we have to catch it very early because they're so stoic. Yeah. And we do a lot of work with the top vet schools in the country to see, to, to try to find those indicators so we can get ahead of the game earlier because that is the biggest problem by the time, you know, horses, horse will fall down the first day. It's not feeling good. Whereas a donkey will stand there and try to muscle through it because they are just so stoic. Yeah. And that's a testament to how much pain they can take. And yes, absolutely why people have used them through history to move things and they load so much on their back and they don't complain they just do it although yes. they could possibly be in a lot of pain which is really sad to know um so going back now you know to where you're at your the headquarters of your facility is in texas yes, in Angelo, texas okay and um you know i I was looking, you've rescued over 3,000, uh, you know, right now that you currently have over 3,000 yes. animals in different facilities all over the United States too. So your headquarters is actually in Texas, but you have, um, from your website, I think it was 75 different locations. Is that correct? Yeah, something like that. We have uh, three, what we call rescue rehabilitation facilities. One of them here is in San Angelo. We have one near Lynchburg, Virginia, and then we have one north of Las Vegas. And so from there, um, we basically uh, take care of each region, West, Central, and East. Yeah. And we have right around 50 satellite adoption centers in each of those re you know, spread out between the regions. And those folks are volunteers that take our adoptable donkeys into their homes and they adopt locally. And so we adopt a lot of donkeys in the Pacific Northwest, uh, New England, Florida, Southern California, places like that. Mm -hmm. And then we have our sanctuaries and we right now we're operating around 20 sanctuaries. And I think we have about 1600 donkeys out on those sanctuaries. And those are the donkeys that come in from the wild typically that aren't ready to go into the training program for adoption. So our numbers are constantly evolving because donkeys are getting adopted out. They're mm -hmm. coming in from our management, our wild donkey management uh, project. And so, so yeah, typically 3000 is the number we say that we have but they're always coming in, they're going out, they're getting trained. So it's a, it's, it's constantly in, in motion. Yeah. Uh, and I was looking at the wild borough project that you guys are currently doing. Um, and it says that, you know, you're working with uh, several uh, government, like the federal government agency, obviously. And then you're also working with like private ranches along the Mexican border, um, the Mojave National Preserve, Death Valley National Park, NASA. Uh, U.S. Army Fort Irwin and the BLM Sale uh, Borough Project. So how are you working with the federal government and what's the current problem with our wild borough population here in the U.S.? 
Okay, um, in 1971, uh, Congress wrote the, the 1971 Free Roaming Wild Horse and Burrow Act. And that put federal protection on all the wild horse and burrow that are roaming around. Well, almost immediately, certain agencies said, nope, not us. The National Park Service is one. They said, no, it doesn't cover national parks. We don't want any wild horses and burrows in national parks. Uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife said, nope, not us. Our job is to preserve what's native. And they're not native. Uh, military installations said, nope, not us, because we're blowing things up and they're going to get hurt. NASA said, nope, not us, because they're eating the cables underneath our satellite dishes. So we don't want them either. And so they're not federally protected on certain lands. Mm. So it used to be the Bureau of Land Management would go in and, and control the populations on these areas. But right now the Bureau of Land Management is just inundated with around 60,000 horses that they have in storage that they don't know what to do with. Wow. And it's taken up about half their budget just to keep those horses fed. Really? So, Yes, so their numbers are really unmanageable right now. And so what, so we've stepped in and we work with like the National Park Service and Death Valley Mojave National Preserve. Those are the two largest national parks in the lower 48 states. They're huge. So we manage those populations. This year, our capture numbers were way down. And that is because the tourist population more than doubled from any other year. Everybody is getting out because of the pandemic. People were literally camping inside of our traps. Oh. And we are talking about, we're in the back country where typically we never see anybody. People were camping inside our traps. They were taking our traps apart. And I, I think it's because they think they're doing the donkeys a favor, but they're not. Um, but typically speaking, we'll pull several hundred donkeys out of those two parks every season. And then the donkeys that are overpopulated in the adjoining Bureau land management areas will then come into our areas and we'll get them next season. Uh, on Fort Irwin, um, they're a nuisance. Like right now we're trapping in Fort Irwin. And when I say in Fort Irwin, I mean the city of Fort Irwin. We have a trap next to Burger King. We have a trap next to the Little League field. Really? Yes, and that's because they come into town for water. That's the only water source. And so with that's and they're a nuisance. They you know they block traffic. Um, they they they're coming into town. So that's where we're trapping right now. And then at NASA, they again they're a nuisance. They get underneath the satellite dishes, and and that's where they like talk to the like the Mars rover, for instance. Mm -hmm. Communication comes from this area out there in the desert. I but see. the donkeys get into the cables and make a mess under there. So okay. we have to get them out. They're a definite nuisance. And so we manage all of those. And when I say manage, we use self-catching traps. They have water, they have food, they go in, they get caught, they get put in a trailer and uh, they get put in a holding area until we can draw their blood and test it. And then we take them to our ranch. So prior to you being involved, were they, were they being shot just like they were in Australia? No, no, um, the Bureau of Land Management were rounding them up. Okay. Typically speaking, the Bureau of Land Management uses either self-catching traps like us or helicopter roundups. <coughs> I see. Oh, but they just couldn't keep up anymore with the with the numbers. 
So and then on the, the, what we do with the Bureau of Land Management is, I want to say it was in 2004, as part of a federal spending bill, a senator plugged in a, a little clause that said any wild horse or burrow over the age of 10 um, either must be sold or can be sold. And so we buy everyone that is 11 years or older. And another clause was if it had been offered for adoption unsuccessfully three times. So we buy all of those and we bought, I think we're closing in on close to 2000 of them that we have bought. Wow. Yeah, we just, and we buy them like 200 at a time. And so we'll bring, and they're typically all males, all uncastrated. And so that takes all that financial burden off the federal government because we do that. Uh, all our castrations here in Texas are done by Texas A&M. Kansas State, um, and I think Oklahoma State, all their fourth year vet students, they come down and they learn how to do the procedure properly. And it's a huge program. We've been doing it for close to 10 years now. Mm -hmm. And it's really successful. Out in uh, our, uh, our facility north of Las Vegas, it's uh, University of California at Davis that comes out and does it. Oh, wow. These are both great schools. Um, yeah. So typically, just you know, for our listeners, so the female donkey we would call Jeanette or Jenny, yes. and the male would be a Jack. And yes. females usually you don't touch or do anything with uh, reproductively, right? It would be the Jack that would get gelded or castrated. Yes. Um, and that's how that would work. And that's, that's a lot of extra money that you're also spending, like you said, besides rounding them up, food, you know, vetting and all that, then you've got to deal with that issue. Um, so that's important because I know you don't promote breeding. So you want to make sure that you know, yes. the last thing you need is any more donkeys. <laughs> yes, and, and all the, especially the wild ones, they all come in pregnant. So we have always have a lot of foals on the ground. But mm -hmm. yeah, we allow no breeding and we don't take any government money whatsoever. I see. So this is all self-funded through private donations. Okay. So, but our cost of our wild borough project is one-tenth of what the taxpayers pay the Bureau of Land Management to do. I mean, we're just much more efficient at what we do than the federal government is. That's amazing. And it's not that we cut corners, it's just that we can make decisions a lot quicker and we can react quicker. To, and that's just the nature of being a nonprofit. So what do you do with the, the pregnant Jennies? Obviously, do you separate them from the rest of the herd or how does well, that typically work? Typically speaking, everything is se uh, separated by sex to mm -hmm. begin with. So the uncastrated jacks, they, they're in a particular part of the ranch that's under lock and key so that there's no way that they can get out and get anywhere near the females. Uh, geldings are kept separated and then all the females are kept se separated. The ones that look pregnant get a uh, pregnancy test and then they get separated into a special area and, until they give birth. And then all the moms sort of hang out together. We uh, do have an occasion where a mom will die during uh, childbirth oh. and they're really the other moms are really good about being surrogate mothers and so they will let those foals um, uh, nurse on them so it's it's donkeys make great mothers that's another testament to how compassionate and sweet these animals are and they're so misunderstood you know they really are um yeah so that's really important to know and the gestation period approximately is how long for a donkey uh, it, it varies. It's usually about a year, but mm -hmm. 
but it can go anywhere from 11 to 14 months, depending on the availability of water, forage, predation, uh, just a lot of factors. So they, they can, they can kind of control it based on, and that's typically in the wild that you would see that, um, but domestically about a year, 12 months. Um, I was looking at the, what exactly does BLM stand for, for the BLM sale? Uh, Bureau of Land Management. Okay. So They're one of the uh, departments of the Department of Interior. I see. So I just wanted to clarify that for our listeners as well. Um, okay, so that is really, really all interesting. And uh, it's unbelievable, really, that you're dealing with all of that. You've got your hands in so many pots. It's amazing. <laughs> um, so you're building, it says, uh, with the influx of all the wild boroughs, you're building new uh, training facilities and transportation hubs in the Northwest, which is Arizona and Central Virginia. Is that correct? Well, they're and, actually built now. That's yeah. They're built now. Okay, so that was from previously. And so uh, you, we were talking about the wild borough management as well. So I kind of want to touch on that because there were some really interesting things that I saw also on the videos that you had regarding the management. So you, you've, I just kind of wanted you to walk us through, let's say you, you caught a donkey and you know you said it gets vetted, right? Blood's drawn, everything, then it goes to your facility in Texas or is there like, where does it go? I guess after that, depending on where it is, correct? Let's say we catch a donkey in Death Valley, all right? Well, usually we'll catch, in the back country, we'll catch 20. They'll go from there to Furnace Creek, which is in Death Valley. Uh, it's at the, near the visitor center in the airstrip. And then when we get, let's say 40, we'll call our veterinarian and she'll fly herself in. She's a pilot. Oh, wow. she, will, she will draw the blood on those 40. And once the, the blood work comes back, and it, it's always negative because these are healthy donkeys, then we will take those 40 donkeys and we will take them to our facility um, north of Las Vegas. But while we're waiting for all of that, the people, our people that are there at Furnace Creek will be spending time with those donkeys every day. Mm -hmm. And by the time they're ready to ship to our facility, most of them are already friendly. Most of them will let you pet them. They'll, they'll come to you for a treat. And so, because they haven't been hurt in any way, mm -hmm. up to that point, they've been handled very, very nicely. They haven't been cowboy. They haven't been roped. They haven't been anything. So they have no reason to fear people. Mm -hmm. So by the time they get to our next facility, they're already pretty manageable. And so then, of course, they've already been separated. The boys from the girls have already been separated from Furnace Creek. And so the males will go to one side of the ranch, the females to the other. And then they'll start assessing them, you know, okay, which ones are too pregnant to be trained, which ones aren't. And the training will begin on the ones that aren't too pregnant. The ones that are too pregnant, they'll go over there and wait till they have their babies. And then we'll decide on the males, what time of year, if it's the middle of summer, we can't castrate them, it's too hot. Mm. So well, they, we only castrate in the cooler months. So those guys might get shipped out to Texas to wait it out. Instead of just having them summer in a hot area there, we have better cooler facilities here in Texas. So we'll just ship them out to Texas. So it all depends on the time of year, but yes, that's sort of how the ball rolls. The females and, and babies usually stay out west to go through training and eventual adoption in one of our facilities. I was also um, <clears throat> thinking, well, well, thousands of donkeys, how do you keep track of all of them? That's actually the easy part. So 
if a donkey needs to be rescued, it comes in to our website, donkeyrescue.org, as a rescue case. And that rescue case is assigned a number. Uh, and it's the same with the Wild Borough Management. There's a rescue case for Death Valley, one for Mojave National Preserve, one for Fort Irwin, one for Southern Arizona, Ajo area. Everything has a rescue case number. And so that rescue case number is attached to that donkey or those donkeys regardless. When the donkey gets processed, whether it's at Furnace Creek or whether it's here, it was Texas Rescue, all the pertinent information, sex, color, um, age, all that goes into what's called a donkey 360. This is all input online. Below that is the in care of record. Who is it in care of? Is it in care of our Texas facility, our Virginia facility, and that all goes online, along with the microchip number in its neck and the microchip number in its ear. So we have two forms of my, and the reason it's two is a lot of our memorandums, our contracts, so to speak, with the government says we have to be able to track that animal. Mm -hmm. Well, if we lose one, we'll always have the other. We'll always be able to track it because sometimes the chips fail. Yes. And so if that donkey then gets moved, whether it's to a sanctuary or to one of our other facilities or eventual adoption, that gets entered into that. Any medical records? It's also entered into that file. So we know every single donkey that we have, where it came from, any medical condition it has, and where it's gone. Yeah, it's very specific database. I mean, you have uh, on one of the uh, films that you have, you're showing exactly how it works. And it's phenomenal because yeah. it's so easy to just kind of punch it in and everything about that donkey comes up. You know exactly where it is, who's taking care of it, and all of its history as well. Um, and uh, you also use um, a branding method called the freeze branding method? Yes. And at first, I, you know, I saw the brands. Um, and when I watched the video, again, the viewers can go to the website and watch this video. The donkey was not upset about it at all. It wasn't even- They don't, they don't even know you're doing it. Feel it, yeah. And what's funny, if I may. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Our staff got the tattoos and I can tell you the tattoos hurt but the donkeys don't feel the freeze brand. Not at all. I mean, I was literally waiting, you know, while the video was rolling. Um, they don't even flinch. Not at all. And I, I was thinking, wow, so they don't even feel it at all. Um, so it's a really nice way of, you know, putting the PV on there. And it's also a good way to make sure that no one illegally is selling your donkeys, correct? Exactly, because in our contract, we have a what's called a reverter clause. So if you can no longer take care of the donkey, it, the ownership reverts back to us. And it's really, it's not a big deal. You know, people's lives change. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe you have to move back to the city and take care of your parents. Maybe you get a job transfer. Things happen. You just pick up the phone, you call our main office. We make arrangements to bring the donkeys back in. It's just that simple. It's the best thing for the donkey. And not that big a deal. So that having that little brand on there just ensures that that donkey doesn't get sold. No big deal. Yes, yes it's important. Now, I know we touched a little bit on Project Sanctuary. Um, and some of the donkeys that aren't ready for adoption, you send them off to these sanctuaries, right? Where they, and what what is considered not adoptable yet? Uh, a lot of the wild guys, they're just, they're, they're not ready to settle down. They're, mm -hmm. They, they, they still need space. And so our typical sanctuary is about 500 acres and we'll put about a hundred donkeys out on there. 
And most of those are, would be a series of say, three areas of 500 acres. So those 100 donkeys will get rotated between those three areas regularly. So they're, they're, they're not overgrazing. They still get the same vet care. They still get their hooves trimmed, their teeth floated, their vaccines, their warming, just like if they were here in one of our other facilities. Uh, we have a team that does nothing but care for those donkeys. So they're out there regularly checking on them, but those donkeys have more of a sense of freedom. They, mm -hmm. They're out in the wild, there's trees, there's grass, they're, you know, they can move independently, they can move with their buddy, whatever they wanna do. And then our trainers go out there every once in a while and hang out with them to see which ones are ready to be brought in and start training. And so it's just, the bleeding and hoof training and all that. Exactly, and it's, it's, it's cheaper to keep them out in those settings than it is to dry lot them here and feed them hay by hand every day. Yeah, that makes complete sense. What about mules? Do you deal with them? We rescued our first mule, I think in 2001 or two. And we've always kind of collected mules because, you know, mule donkey. So we had a bunch and back in, and I'm probably gonna give you the wrong date, 2019, I decided to create a division called the Lost Meadows Mule Refuge. And I found this young lady online who was running her own mule refuge called Mules and Company. Mm -hmm. and she was up in Arkansas. And I interviewed her, I flew her down here, interviewed her, I really liked her. And so I offered her the job as the director of Lost Meadows and she accepted. And we have since spun her off into her own nonprofit. And so now Lost Meadows Mule Refuge is her own 501c3. Oh, wow. Yes. And so MuleRescue.org is her website. She's still here in San Angelo, Texas on our yard. Um, I'm still working with her and mentoring her on fundraising, but she is her own nonprofit now. And she is the only dedicated mule rescue in the United States. Wow, that's spectacular. Yes. Yes, that is. Yeah, because I... I hear so many things about horses and donkeys, and I, I wondered if there was anything that specialized in just mules. Yes, her name is Batty Kester, and it's MuleRescue.org, and she is awesome. That's awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, I know you've done so much for the donkeys, and one of the videos that I saw, you went as far as to even get a prosthetic leg for one of them. Yes, we've actually had two with prosthetics now. And uh, the one, the first one named Tink, uh, he had a hoof that had grown like a hook, like this. Gosh. And there was another bigger donkey in the pasture with him, and they got to fighting, and he got that hook caught in that halter, and it just pulled his hoof, entire hoof off, including the coffin bone. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Terrible. And the owners did nothing about it, and a neighbor... I don't think the neighbor saw it happen, but noticed the donkey limping. When the donkey got close enough, the neighbor saw there was no hoof and called the sheriff's department. And I did a lot of work with the sheriff's department. And so he and I went there together and the owner decided it was in his best interest to surrender all the donkeys to us. And so um, I felt terrible. I didn't have anything I could do with the donkeys um, to make him more comfortable. So I just rushed home came to the ranch, we bandaged him up as best we could, 
and then ran to the vet uh, so that the vet could assess him and take x-rays. And then we got him in prosthetic made. And so his name was Tink. And then we have another one out in Virginia that has prosthetic now. And how are they doing now? Doing fine. So they've adjusted and it's, oh, yeah. you've, you've really changed their lives, those two. My gosh, that's amazing. Um, do, so you obviously do the wild, you know, you help with the wild uh, burrows. So you take in expats, correct? And yeah. do you deal anything with farms? For instance, if a farm had, you know, shut down and they had a, a ton of donkeys or, because I know that some farms use donkeys for cat with the cattle. Right. And how, how is that? How does, how do they use donkeys to help with cattle? Um, donkeys, because of their uh, loving nature, they will bond with just about anything, but they have a natural dislike of canine. And so they're, some donkeys are good guardians and they will protect cows while they're calving against say coyotes. That wow. uh, uh, sheep and goat uh, people will get them to, protect their flocks from predators also. Not all donkeys are good at it. Males especially aren't good at it. It's usually females. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> sorry. Uh, we get a lot of calls of people that get males and the males end up killing goats and sheep and then they're not real happy with their donkeys. So we bring a lot of those in. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, here in Texas, especially during drought time, people will destock their ranches and find out that they had more donkeys than they thought they did. And so we'll get calls of 20, 30 donkeys that they'll, they'll want to give us. So have you dealt with kill pens at all? No. I'm rescuing from kill pens. You don't do that. Okay. Because I know with the rescue that I've worked with, we've, we've pulled uh, a lot of donkeys from kill pens and that's a whole other story, right? Um, they tend to be very sick and they need a lot of help. Um, and by the time we get to them, they're pretty emaciated. So some don't even make it to where they need to go. And, uh, you know, talking about the issue of obviously exporting equine in general, um, I'm sure you see a lot of that down in Texas too, because it's right on the Mexican border um, where animals are exported. Well, because, you know, in the United States, we're not allowed to obviously um, slaughter equine. So, what a lot of people do is, um, you know, they'll have a, what they call a quote unquote kill pen where they'll get shipments and they'll have contracts with these um, countries across the world for hide, for meat or whatever it is. And they send literally thousands upon thousands of animals to them every month. So I just kind of wanted to highlight that that's going on here in the US as well. Now you are, you have a donkey museum coming up. Yes, it'll open November 5th of this year. Wow, and what could people expect to see there? Well, um, we have collected donkey history things for the last 20 years. Some of them have been gifted to us uh, from various estates. Some of them we have just found along the road of life. And nobody knows much about the contributions of donkeys to history, but like I said, donkeys uh, were here 178 years before we signed the Declaration of Independence. They crossed what, uh, the Rio Grande into what is now Texas in 1598. Wow. They helped build the Spanish trails, the Catholic mission system. They uh, uh, were the front runners of the railroads. 
They, of course, were involved in the mining, uh, you know, the Death Valley regions, the arid regions, the gold strike of, of uh, 49, just integral and nowhere are they mentioned. And so I want to teach people their history, their contributions. The museum is going to concentrate basically uh, on Western Hemisphere history, uh, not just the United States, but uh, Mexico, Central America, South America, uh, just their contributions in those regions. We have a lot of really cool displays. Uh, it's going to be in Mesquite, Nevada, which is north of Las Vegas, right on the uh, border with Arizona and Utah. It's uh, What's going to be unique about it is the inside walls move there. And so we can make new displays. It'll be every six months. It'll be a whole new museum with a whole new look. And uh, we're going to have virtual reality goggles. So you will know what it's like to sit in the middle of 500 donkeys running past you. Oh, that's really nice. You will be able to see what it's like to ride in a Jeep in the back country of Death Valley and see what wild donkey habitat looks like. Um, you're going to be able to take a, a virtual tour of our facility here in Texas to see what a thousand donkey uh, facility looks like. Cool things like that. Yeah. Um, it's, it's going to be unique. It's going to be free to the public. Oh, um, free. One donor who had this whole idea for this and underwrote the whole expense. And, but it's free to the public and you're just going to learn all about donkeys and all about Peaceful Valley and just it's, it's going to be an awesome experience. But yeah, to be open November 5th, be the grand opening. That's awesome. And I'm definitely, if I'm in the area, I'm definitely going to go see it because that's that sounds like an amazing experience. So um, I know that you have a quote unquote dream team, but basically it's the Donkey Risk Emergency and Management Team. There you go. Yeah, yeah, it's a lot. It's a mouthful. So uh, I thought I'd ask you before I'd have to look down and read it. <laughs> All right. Well, what that is, it, if you want to get involved in emergency response, because we do have, I think, 14 truck trailer combinations throughout the country. So if you want to get in involved in emergency response, you basically turn yourself over to emergency services and they tell you where to go and what to do mm -hmm. that doesn't work for us so instead what we do is we look for regions where donkeys may be in jeopardy and we reach out to donkey owners in those regions and say hey do you, would you like us to come and move your donkeys to a safe location until what time this passes whether it's a hurricane whether it's a, a chance of flood anything like that, let's get your donkeys out. We're gonna put them in a quarantine area on one of our facilities. They can just hang out, have a play date. Worst case, we burn some fuel. We don't charge for our services. Um, we pulled donkeys out of the hurricane that hit North Carolina uh, several years ago. Yeah. We saved those donkeys' lives. They would have been underwater. Yeah. So, so we don't respond after the fact we try to respond before the fact. You know, if a wildfire is burning 100 miles north of you and it's coming towards you, let's get your donkeys out before they're in danger, right? And if, if the fire doesn't come to you, all we did was burn some gas and your donkey's got a plate in. That's great. I love that. Um, 
Well, a couple more things before we wrap this up that I was really interested in finding out a little bit more about. You had um, the Alantia hoarding case yes. that you dealt with and reading about it was amazing. I really wanted to, sh to share it with the audience as well. Can you tell us a little bit about the story? Um, uh, the Wildboro Rescue and Preservation. Um, Diana Chantos was actually a friend of mine 20 years ago. And at some point she and her organization went downhill. And I don't know what happened, but those animals were suffering. And it was located in Inyo County in California. And Inyo County is one of the largest counties in California, but it encompasses Death Valley. And so there's not a lot of people, so there's not a lot of taxes. Mm. They knew what was going on, but they, they couldn't do anything about it because they couldn't afford to do anything about it. And they had one uh, sheriff's deputy, I believe she was, who finally just got fed up with it and started looking online and she found me. And we got on the phone and she asked if I knew about it. And I said, oh, I know about it. But Diana told everybody that she knew that if I ever came up there, she would shoot me on sight. Really? Yes. And so she said, well, you know, what kind of help could you offer? I said, I will pay all the expenses. I'll do everything. You got to get me on site. And so they arrested her on five felony animal cruelty charges. They arrested her and we pulled every piece of equipment we had. And we were up there three days later and we pulled 140 donkeys, nine horses and seven mules. And it took us a day and a half to do it. We pulled every one of them. Wow. Uh, the county euthanized, I think, four of the donkeys. They were in that bad of shape. Uh, all told, when it was all done, it cost us $160,000 to bring the animals back to health. Uh, you know, we still have ongoing expenses, but that was basically what it cost to perform that rescue and get them all back to the health that we could. A lot of them will have ongoing care for the rest of their lives. When uh, did this occur again in recently? Uh, I believe it was 2018. 2018. So these animals are still not adopted out, right? They're still being worked no, on? They'll, they'll be with us for life, yeah. Okay, for life. Okay, so they're in the sanctuary with you guys then. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, because, um, <clears throat> you know, one of the things that you were saying um, on your website, you were talking about, you know, you obviously got to do you know, geldings, you've got to do dentals. Um, so there's a lot that goes on to this. Like you said, some were euthanized. So it's a lot of uh, expense, but you were willing to do it uh, as long as, you know, the, the, the animals were safe and they were happy. So that's, that's amazing. Um, I wanted to kind of move on to one thing I loved about your website is, you know, yes, you do talk about donkeys and animals, but you also talk about saving the earth. And one thing that um, really caught my attention was the, uh, when you were talking about the plastics. Yes. So I know you've highlighted that on your website, but can you tell me a little bit more about that? Um, we, well, we, uh, we took the plastic pledge where we try not to use any 
uh, disposable plastic, one-time use plastic. So all of our employees are issued a stainless steel water bottle. We have uh, the, the, by lack of better, the sparklets water dispensers in all of our offices, all of our buildings, so that they can refill their water. Um, we just try to, you know, we use compostable utensils and cups wherever possible. We just, we, we do our very best to not contribute to that problem. Uh, when I was a, uh, a CNN hero in 2019, one of my fellow heroes, uh, Afraz from India, that was his big thing is he cleans beaches in India of plastics. And so he was always preaching to us about plastics. And we had actually started this before I was a hero. But yeah, I, that's just, you know, we got one planet. We got to take care of it. And it does it make a difference. Probably not. But if I can get all my employees to do it, and if I can get my satellites to maybe start thinking about it, and then maybe start everybody thinking about it, why not? It's yeah. At least it's something. First of all, congratulations on the honor of being named a hero on the CNN. That was quite an honor, I must say. It, that was it is, and it was done in 2019, so it wasn't too long ago. Um, that was impressive, actually. But yeah, with the single-use plastic uh, pledge, I'm hoping that some of our listeners would also listen to this and, and understand the important message behind it. Um, one thing you were saying on your website is that water and soda bottles contain less than 5% recycled plastic. And so that's about, you know, only 30% of that is actually shipped overseas. Um, and I guess they make carpet out of it, which is never recycled as well. Yes. Um, so, you know, you mentioned some of the highlights were that the world's population consumes 1 million soda and water bottles per minute, yep. which is insane when you really think about it. And you know, not only that, but there are straws, there are utensils, and 75 million U.S. households own a Keurig K-cup machine. And what's funny is I'm probably one of the few that doesn't. <laughs> and when I read that, I was extremely happy because, you know, a lot of uh, family and friends are saying, you know, you're probably the last person on earth that hasn't gotten a Keurig yet. And I just didn't because I felt like it was so wasteful that I yeah. didn't really know um, the statistics of what you were saying and that even the inventor had regretted it because, I mean, it says if each machine produces just two cups per day, that is 1 billion, 50 million plastic K-cups in our landfills each week, each week. Um, so yeah, so it says, you know, there are reusable cups with paper filters that work just as well. And it said 1 trillion, 1 trillion, I'm going to re- iterate that plastic shopping bags are used every day. So thank you so much for taking that pledge. And I'm hoping that some of our viewers would, or listeners as well would, would understand the significance of this. And even though you might feel that it doesn't make much of a difference, but all of your employees and you taking it one person at a time does. So you know, there's, there's alternatives. There's um, plant-based. Yes. And they're composed. You can, they're compostable. Instead of petroleum-based plastics, there's plant-based plastics. There's, you know, they cost a little bit more money, but isn't it worth it? Yeah, I think so, in my opinion. So, you know, you've done an amazing job starting from just adopting one donkey 
and look at your organization now. It has reached the world, really. And we really want to thank you for everything that you've done for these animals. Um, I want to kind of ask you, how can we help? Obviously, donations are important. How can we help your organization? Well, um, spreading the word uh, always helps. But, you know, to be quite frank, it's all about the money. Mm -hmm. I've got my favorite donkey on this yard is Job. Job is 42 years old, and he's a crotchety old man. Every morning he wakes up, he expects to be fed. He expects his teeth to get floated, the few he has left. He expects his hose to be done. You know, he, ex he expects medical care. And so do the 3,000 others that we have, as do all the ones that get rescued. And all that takes money. We have 50 employees. And we need every single one of them. We have all, all the expenses that every other business has. We have insurances, we have trucks, we have maintenance, we have all these things. Mm -hmm. And all those things cost money. And we do our very best to, to be good stewards of the donations that we get. But there are so many donkeys out there that need our help. We've got two trucks right now working just north of us because we're on fire here in Texas. Oh. And so we're pulling donkeys out of harm's way as we speak. We don't have a line item for fires in Texas. Mm -hmm. We have an emergency fund that we draw from that we try to keep filled. But the money is important because without money, we can't help these donkeys. And, it, you know, it always sounds so terrible to hear a charity say it's about the money, but it really is. These donkeys need our help and that costs money. Mm -hmm. So I would encourage everybody to go to donkeyrescue.org and make a donation. Yes. And you're also on Facebook under Donkey Adoption. Yes. On Instagram under Donkey Rescue. Um, you have YouTube videos that are instrumental in teaching everyone about what's going on with your rescue and all over the world. And it's called Donkey Rescue TV. Correct. Um, if people have, you know, general info, like want general information or questions, they can always call the 866-366-5731 number. Yes. And also if they're looking for adoption information, that also helps, right, to adopt a donkey. Um, you can always um, email adopt at pvdr.org. Um, I know that you guys are part of the Global Federation of Animal Sanctuaries accredited, and so that's a high honor as well. Um, and any donations that are possible, I know on your website, you have various ways to donate. People can do a one-time donation. They could do a monthly, or um, they can even choose a bench if they'd like to donate that way, um, you know, in memory of a loved one. Uh, and also, there was another thing that so the park bench sponsor is uh, for 350 or a picnic table sponsor was 250 as well. So anything helps, every little thing helps. Um, and we're hoping that uh, our viewers out there would continue to help uh, your cause. So thank you so much, Mark, for joining me. I appreciate me. you having me on. I really appreciate it. Is there anything else you'd like to add? No, just uh, take the time to learn about donkeys. They're nothing like most people perceive. Definitely. Definitely. Thank you again for joining us. No, I appreciate you. Have a lovely day. You too. If you like what you see and hear, please push the follow button and share this podcast so we can reach as many people as possible to save more lives. Thank you for listening to The Rescue Revolution. 
This is Iman Gwaley, leaving you with this final message. Paying it forward is not a choice. It's a fundamental obligation of being human. Please pay it forward by saving a soul today.